I feel like I should be starting this episode with the vitamin C song, Graduation. <laughs> Just kidding, guys. Welcome back to the Dental Bright Bites podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Kidd, and today we're at the end of an era because it is our third and final interview with Perrin Desports of Tusk Partners. I am so grateful to Perrin for coming on to this series and helping share some really great information about the multi-location corporate dental space. So without further ado, we'll get into this episode where we're talking about the top three metrics to measure when you're creating a group dental practice. All right, so we're back with Perrin Desports for our last episode in our series, talking about the top three metrics to measure when building a successful group practice. I'm excited to pick your brain on this one. Uh, I know that there's lots of great stuff that you can pay attention to when when making a successful practice, Um, but we're going to try to narrow it down just to three because we like the number three. Um, so let's start off with talking about the dollar utilization rate per chair per hour and how that can grow your practice. Yeah. So I think you're right. There are a million things that you can, uh, uh, that you can pay attention to in any business. And, um, we've seen all kinds of different trackers and KPIs and, um, analytics and everything else. And while, while all of that's important at some level, um, I, I think every business needs to, to identify what its real true drivers of success are. Um, and, and those can be unique to that business, but there are a couple of things um, uh, that we tend to fall back on in our, in our consulting offering, at least, as we're talking about maximizing the opportunity that's inherent within some of these businesses. So you get a dentist, be it a, a single location or in a group context, that loves to talk about the amount of revenue that they generated out of the business. You know, I've, I've, my practice generated a million dollars last year. Well, hey, doc, that's great. How many operatories do you have? Well, I have 17. You know? Oh, boy. Okay. Now, maybe that's a di- now that gives you a different perspective on a million dollars worth of revenue. Yeah. Um, or if I say, you know, my, my practice generated two and a half million dollars worth of revenue last year. And you say, wow, that's a, a pretty big number. How many operatories did you have? Well, I have five. Wow. Now, that's kind of a staggering number on the other end of the perspective, on the other yeah. end of the spectrum, right? So I think as you start drilling this down into operatories or chairs, um, taking it one step further into um, a, a, a revenue per hour per chair context takes into account the size of the facility, meaning the number of chairs as well as uh, the amount of available capacity in terms of time. Um, And we're seeing many groups uh, that are um, uh, trying to be as convenient as they possibly can uh, to a prospective patient base. And you hear the, you know, open 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. seven days a week or something like that. Um, And while that may be a lot by any stretch, um, the ability to expand hours uh, and take advantage of the fixed costs and maximize the capacity in these groups really ought to be a focal point um, for every group of every size. And the number we tend to fall back on uh, is $175 per chair per hour. 
and you can extrapolate that out now into uh, the number of uh, chairs that you have and the, the number of uh, hours that the, the practice is open on a weekly, monthly, or annual basis, and then compare and contrast that against where the revenue line uh, ended up last year and have sort of a barometer of, uh, of, of what the, um, uh, the true potential of the business is. I think I've heard that in solo practices that one operatory should be bringing, I think it was like around 300,000. Yeah, 250 to three and a quarter is, is and that's, that's a pretty, pretty wide range, obviously. Yeah. Um, uh, that's like the averages. Yeah, I mean, you get into, so like the example I, I, I gave earlier, which was two and a half million on five chairs, Obviously, that's five hundred thousand dollars worth of revenue per chair, and it was a single doctor practice um, working out of three operatories with two hygienists. And this dentist did um, uh, a lot of IV sedation, so a lot of longer-term, expanded, um, more complicated cases that were higher revenue generation. It was also a fee-for-service, one hundred percent fee-for-service practice, um, which helps protect the top line as, as well yeah. from a revenue gen standpoint. Um, now, what it would be considered too good, <laughs> uh, because I know that there's a certain point that, um, in lectures I've listened that you've spoken in the past, um, where DSOs will not buy a practice because it's too profitable. Um, so should doctors be worried about that? Yeah. So have they, have they built a business that can't be sold? Um, yeah. is, is the real question. Um, and, and I would say, so this, this does come back to capacity. So let me, let me answer that question um, with this two and a half million dollar revenue um, practice that I mentioned, because I think it's very illustrative at the way uh, certain uh, groups are willing to look at super successful solo practices. And we're, we're seeing a good bit, we, we started referring to, to this as the $2 million practice phenomenon. It's typically one doctor in one location generating about $2 million worth of revenue, which is a, a phenomenally um, high volume practice, no matter how you mm -hmm. categorize it. So what does that mean from, um, from a buyer context? Obviously, these are very profitable businesses, and if your audience listened to our, our prior um, uh, uh, podcast on EBITDA and, and valuation multiples and things like that, you know, a, a two to two and a half million dollar revenue um, general dentistry practice with one dentist uh, is probably going to value north of 100% of revenue, so two and a half to three million, maybe something like that. Um, and in that context, the buyer is going to look at it from a couple of different ways. If it's one doctor, they're probably not working, that doctor's probably not working seven to seven, seven days a week, right? Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. The second thing is if it's fee for service, that's a highly profitable endeavor, but could we, if, the, if they were working normal hours, uh, eight to five or something along those lines, four days a week, eight to six, four days a week, could we expand the available hours each day and maybe even tack on a Friday if they weren't open on Friday? Could we expand the capacity somehow? And if we did expand the capacity, that would mean we probably have the opportunity to bring in an associate. If we brought in an associate, what's the fastest way to get that associate productive? 
but through taking more insurance plans and even some PPOs to, uh, to generate more uh, new patients uh, into that practice. So now we're starting to look for ways to expand the inherent capacity of the business beyond what it has been up to this point. The last thing I'll tell you, and this, this is probably a, a pretty good um, uh, opportunity for you, is that um, there is often the opportunity to expand the number of treatment rooms, either knocking down a wall and going next door and, and you know, uh, expanding the lease a little bit and adding three treatment rooms, for example, or converting a doctor's office or part of a staff lounge or doing some reconfiguration of the physical facility there to add um, an additional chair or chairs, to add an additional provider and expand hours. Now the, the group that's acquiring that high value practice is starting to see revenue upside potential with minimal capital investment. And that allows them to get comfortable paying a higher dollar amount for that particular business. Okay. Okay. That's a long-winded way of saying that chances are no, they haven't built a business that can't be sold. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Uh, let's get on to the next of our three things. So the concept of operating leverage. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So um, operating leverage is a principle uh, that they drilled into us early on in my days at, at Patterson and, and running a couple of different businesses for Patterson when we had P&L responsibility. And the, the theory is that you always want to grow profit faster than sales, or you want to grow income faster than revenue, or you want to grow the bottom line faster than you grow the top line. All too often, um, we see groups that, that come in to, to work with us uh, and, and they want to talk about um, revenue growth. You know, the, the business grew 15% last year. We added 18% to the top line, blah, 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 blah. Well, that, that's great. I'm interested in that. But, but how much did you take home? Yeah. And, and how much did you put to the bottom line? Um, what did it cost you to get that 18% revenue increase? You know, if you, if you grew revenue by $200,000 last year, and it cost you $190,000 of investment to do that, marginally, I guess it's worth it, but not very much. And that's not probably a sustainable course of action for the future. So as you're growing these, these businesses through location counts and certainly through revenue generating uh, opportunities like expanded clinical procedures or increased marketing efforts or um, preferential insurance reimbursement rates, whatever you're doing to focus on the top line is wonderful because a, a dental practice has reasonable fixed costs. And once you get beyond the level of fixed costs, between about 70 and 80% of the dollar generated should drop to the bottom line. So if you're not growing your profit faster than you're growing your, your revenue line, you've got a, a major problem somewhere in the operations of the business. And operating leverage is the discipline of, of growing the bottom line faster than the top line. And it's the hallmark of, of every uh, well-run business, regardless of size. How would you grow your bottom line faster than the top line, though? Because the top line is what you have control over. Yeah. But um, it's like your production, you know? Yeah. So, but if you think about it, um, is it costing you the same amount of dollar input to generate 
um, that dollar off the top line. Uh, if you grew a hundred, uh, excuse me, a hundred thousand dollars in revenue this year by doing um, uh, increasing your endo procedures or, or um, something along those lines, did did you have to um, increase the square footage of the business to do that? Um, no, so you didn't have to take on more fixed costs in terms of the uh, the physical space of the equipment. Did you so need? add more in terms of headcount to do mm -hmm. it um arguably not so i guess what you're kind of saying is to grow your production in ways that doesn't cost you that much to do so um so like for example fix your hygiene program fix your recall something like that where you can just pay attention to maybe what those numbers look like and be aware of it make the changes rather than having to go out and invest in a ton of new patients um, that, that that's exactly right so okay. where where do you get the most bang for the buck if you have to make investments in the business maybe um on that endo example you need to, to go and, and take more classes on how to perform more complicated endo work, or you might have to make nominal investment in terms of um, uh, hand pieces and technology or something like that to, to actually perform the work. But the work itself is incredibly valuable from a revenue context. Your, your investment to be able to do that endo work uh, is far less um, than, than um, uh, what it costs you to perform it uh, and, and also the, the cost of the business. So most of um, the, the revenue drops to the bottom line of the business. Gotcha. Awesome. Okay. And the next thing that we want to touch on is acquiring patients. Yeah. So, you know, this is one where um, <laughs> I think you get, you get dental practices um, that I feel like it's the tale of two halves. Either they invest a phenomenal amount in, in marketing dollars uh, in the business, um, or they invest nothing mm -hmm. to grow the business and, and just simply re rely on word of mouth. Um, there's, there's nothing inherently wrong on either end of the spectrum, but our perspective is that if you're gonna continue to grow the business and maximize um, uh, the opportunity in the space and grow revenue through expanded operating hours and stuff like that. And, and you're going to want to attract new patients. Um, how, how are you choosing to do that? What is the vehicle that produces the most bang for the buck um, and has the greatest um, conversion rate from a, a customer or a patient retention standpoint? So mm. the obvious example here is Groupon of a number of years ago. Every, every dental practice who was interested in adding new patients um, went through the process of, of using Groupon to do it. And you know what? They got a lot of new patients to walk through their front door because they offered a free uh, exam or free x-rays or something like that and discounted, um, discounted cleanings and things along those lines. And you had this mass influx of, uh, of patients through Groupon and very few of them stuck in the practice. So what they did was they discounted their services, they arguably cannibalized some of their, their available chair time, um, and they ended up with very uh, little patient retention in terms of the overall active patients within the practice. You also get dentists that are interested in um, mass media advertising, uh, radio and TV, for example, 
There's a ton with SEO right now. There's still print media that can be valuable in certain areas. There are a ton of different areas to, um, uh, to spend marketing dollars. The question really becomes when a patient either calls or walks through the front door for their first visit, how did they hear about us? Um, you know, what, what got them to come into our, our practice and, and even why, you know, what struck them about that ad or that message or something, what resonated with them to get them to come here? Are you tracking the dollars that you spend in different marketing buckets and how many patients come in as a result of that dollar spend? So if you spend $100,000 a year on TV ads, um, for the 6 a.m. Uh, morning news or something like that, that may be a huge amount of dollars. But if it generated a million dollars worth of revenue in the business, then that might be your most advantageous return on investment. In that case, it would be spending, um, you know, and if it was, it was $100,000 and it generated 1,000 patients, it's $100 to acquire a patient cost to acquire a patient of $100, but it generated $1,000 for every dollar spent. So those are the metrics that you want to break down and itemize to understand where is your revenue, I'm sorry, where is your marketing spend going, which buckets in terms of dollars, how many patients come as a result of that effort, and what is the revenue generated from those patients in those buckets to see which is the most effective dollar for dollar use of your, your uh, marketing spend. Now, say you are like a 10 location group that's doing marketing. Do you find that these people are usually doing different approaches to marketing for multiple locations? Is there a uniform way that they're approaching it? How important is new patients to a, a large group? group of uh, maybe 10 locations. Yeah, so I, I, how, how important is uh, new patient generation? It's incredibly important. Um, and, and part of the um, cost synergies, if you will, of running something like a 10 location group practice uh, is that you are able to get um, uh, synergies in marketing costs. Let's go back to the, you know, the 6 a.m. Uh, commercials on uh, um, the morning news and things along those lines. If you've got 10 locations in the greater metropolitan LA area or something like that, um, you're able to maximize your airwave spend because it blankets that whole area and you've got 10 locations for anybody that hears the message to take advantage of. So I don't have to drive an hour after I heard your, your radio spot or your TV spot to get to the practice, there may be one that's a lot closer to me than that. So I can, I can get some overlap in terms of my dollar spend and maximize the dollars um, uh, from an awareness standpoint. If you're more spread out, um, be it 10 locations or, or a lot more than that, um, and you're not as uh, tight from a geography standpoint, you, you, you're going to want to you're going to want to figure out what type of marketing um, plays best within that certain location. It's more um, focused. Yeah, yeah, and that that's going to be some trial and error. I will tell you also that there are a lot of marketing companies, um, um, and some of them are, are you know tethered to real estate uh, development companies, but um, they do marketing demographic reports as well as psychographic reports. 
marketing demographic reports are you know um, characteristics of the the local market 2.2 kids a dog a cat a white picket fence and make sixty seven thousand dollars in household income and all that stuff is kind of quantifiable marketing psychographics and psychographic reports are really more uh, buyer behavior and how people make purchasing decisions so if you're trying to craft a marketing campaign to figure out how to reach an audience you might want to know the drivers of behavior within that local marketplace and psychographic reports are more um, uh, behavioral oriented and value-based research um, those are those are types of reports that can usually be um, purchased from from local marketing companies and like I say the uh, a lot of them are conjoined with um, real estate groups as well interesting now, I know that this percentage can vary from group to group based on their own situation and how far they are along, but uh, in your experience, going back to the P&L, what percentage do you recommend for a group or do you see for a group to be spending in marketing? Yeah, so I think the, the bucket is probably three to five percent. Now, we've seen it as low as, as one to two, um, and we've seen it as high as nine to ten. What, what you find is that there are very few, um, you know, uh, non-private equity backed groups. Um, there are very few groups uh, that are spending nine to 10% on their marketing that can tell you quantifiably um, the benefit of those marketing dollars from uh, both a patient generation and a, and a, um, a revenue generation context. So, if you, if, if you get a larger group, um, 80 locations or something, um, and there's professional management behind it, and those people are spending 8 to 10% somehow on, on marketing efforts, there's a solid reason why, and they know the numbers behind it. On the other hand, if you get a 10-location group practice that's spending 10% on marketing, I think the likelihood is that they're not as... Um, they don't know their numbers as well, and they're not as attuned to where their marketing spend is, is best oriented. Awesome. Great information. Thank you so much. I appreciate all the time you spent giving us really great tips on the middle market space. Uh, I know you guys are experts in this and you focus on it. You've been doing this for a long time, so we really appreciate your input. Thanks for having me on, Sarah. I really enjoyed it. I hope, you're, uh, hope your audience got a, a little something out of it. If there's anything that Tusk can do to, to help any of them or help you, certainly uh, don't hesitate to reach out. Yeah, we'll put all of your information in the show notes for people in case anyone wants to reach out to you. Excellent. Thanks so much for that. I appreciate it. And that will wrap up this trilogy with Tusk Parent Desports. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the show. Before you leave, as always, if you can share us with one of your dental friends, I would greatly appreciate that. And please, if you could leave a five-star review, if you like listening to the podcast, it really helps other listeners find me. 